Hello, and welcome to a special presentation of the Brazil Institute podcast. I'm your host, Nick Zimmerman. The Brazil Institute recently hosted reporter at large and columnist at Folha de Sao Paulo, Patricia Campos Melo, CEO and founder of IDEA Big Data, Mauricio Mora, and partner at Jota Digital Media Startup, Fernando Melo, to discuss Brazil's upcoming presidential election, how the results may unfold come October, and what some of the policy implications the result might entail. I hope you enjoy this discussion and that you will join us again soon for another episode of the Brazil Institute podcast. Good morning, everyone. Bom dia a todos. Uh, I'm Nick Zimmerman, Senior Advisor uh, at the Brazil Institute, and we are thrilled uh, to be able to bring together our extended community and network this morning uh, for really such an important and timely discussion. I think it is no stretch to say that Brazil's presidential election later this year will be among the world's most important. It will be a statement on the stakes and I think um, state of, of being of, of global democracy, uh, where democracy stands in, in the Americas, uh, in the global south. And um, we are looking at an election that seems increasingly likely to present a pretty stark choice uh, to the Brazilian people. Um, any notions of a third way, third candidate, Tisera Via, uh, seem increasingly unlikely. And we're now faced with um, near certainty that um, this race will, will come down to current President uh, Jair Bolsonaro and former President Luis Inácio Lula da Silva, uh, who are near polar opposites when it comes to uh, political ideology and, and, and their histories in um, Brazilian politics over the last several, several decades. From the strength of Brazil's democratic institutions to the health of the Amazon, the implications of this race uh, for Brazil and beyond are enormous. And fortunately, we have an incredible panel uh, to walk us through all the ins and outs, the subtleties, complexities, idiosyncrasies uh, of the race. Uh, walk us through the current state of play, what to watch for moving forward, uh, what types of policy shifts and priorities we might see in 2023 from Plan Alto, regardless of, of who wins and, and several other topics as well that we've, we've teed up uh, for all of you. So uh, with that said, let me introduce again the all-star panel, if I say so myself, that we've organized for, for you all to, today. Um, I'm going to start with Patricia, Patricia Campos Melo. Uh, is a dear friend. I've been on the other side of some of her questions in her profession as a journalist and have known that I always need to bring my A game before uh, I discuss uh, anything with her with respect to Brazilian foreign policy, American foreign policy, international affairs writ large. Uh, Patricia is reporter at large and a columnist at Folio de Sao Paulo, uh, one of Brazil's most important uh, newspapers. For over 25 years, she's been covering international relations, economics, human rights, Ebola, COVID, you name it. She's done it. Um, she has been awarded so many prizes and awards as a journalist that I'm afraid to list them all because I wouldn't want to offend anyone that I inadvertently left out. But just to give you a flavor, uh, Patricia is a winner of the Columbia University Maria Moore's Cabot Award. She's the winner of the International Press Freedom Award from the Committee to Protect Journalists, CPJ. Uh, she's won the Vladimir Herzog Special Award for Democracy and Justice. 
the International Committee of the Red Cross has awarded her for her work in humanitarian journalism. And even the King of Spain awarded her uh, a journalism prize uh, a couple years ago. Patricia's had any number of focuses over her very, very impressive and lengthy career in, in, in journalism. But since 2014, one area of focus, which I do think will be relevant for our discussion today, has been her work publishing a series of, of, of stories about the illegal use of social media apps, particularly WhatsApp, um, WhatsApp mass messaging to send fake news and, and uh, use these platforms to engage in other sort of political influential uh, influence operations that, that is to manipulate public opinion. Um, she is the author of the book, A Máquina do Odio, Notas de uma Reportea sobre Fake News e Violência Digital. Um, which really unpacked uh, disinformation campaigns by populist leaders in Brazil, the US, uh, India, and how intimidation of journalists uh, by the Bolsonaro administration um, has played over the last several years, as well as the impact it's had in terms of erosion of freedoms of the press in, in, in Brazil. As I mentioned, she's covered the COVID-19 epidemic in Brazil most recently. Um, she was also previously a Washington correspondent for Estado de Sao Paulo newspaper, uh, she studied uh, journalism at the University of Sao Paulo. She has a master's from New York University. Um, and she's also spent time in Syria, Iraq, Libya, Turkey, Lebanon, and Kenya reporting on refugees. Before I uh, run out of breath, I'm going to uh, keep it pushing uh, and like to introduce Fernando Melo uh, from Jota. Fernando is a co-founder uh, and partner of, of, Jota, of Jota, where I certainly go to to catch up on many of the happenings in Brazil. If, if you're not familiar with Jota, I uh, highly recommend it. It was actually elected uh, the world's best digital media startup uh, in, in 2019, has several services that help decision makers um, and the general public kind of follow what's going on in Brazil's elections, keep up with specific bills under consideration in the Brazilian Congress, even track judicial cases. It's really just a, a fountain of information. And Fernando is responsible for the quantitative team, um, which focuses on casual inference, voter behavior, machine learning. He is widely published. He's written for Veja magazine in Brazil, Folha de Sao Paulo, El País, America. Um, and he holds a master's degree from Georgetown University with a focus in government uh, and is now currently finishing a PhD, uh, hopefully soon, I'm sure he, he, he wishes, in political science and a master's in statistics at UCLA. And finally, but certainly not least, my old friend, former panelist, Dr. Mauricio Maura, who is the CEO and founder of IDEA, uh, Big Data, which seeks to transform and integrate data, facts, analysis, and experience into uh, intelligence for, for, for their clients. He has a lengthy career looking at polling data, voter behavior, historical trends in, in Brazilian politics, and we're really lucky to to have him. Uh, he's a board member of the Graduate School of Political Management at GW and is also a columnist for Exomi Magazine and the Brazilian Report. Mariso holds a degree in economics from the University of Sao Paulo, a master's in social sciences from the University of Chicago, uh, a master's in political management from GW, and a PhD, uh, not to not to leave it there, right? Mauricio had just a master's, a PhD in economics and politics from the Fundação Getúlio Vargas. Uh, so with that said, I think we've got all the expertise in place to have a fruitful discussion today, uh, and let's let's just jump right in. So my first question 
I think just to get a good kind of lay down of where things stand, it will be for Mauricio. Uh, Mauricio, I'd love to hear how you assess the current state of the race. Uh, you're our in-house pollster for the morning. Um, so really anything that's jumping out to you that's relevant, um, that's catching your attention would, would be useful. But just to frame things a little bit, in many ways, the race has actually seemed remarkably stable. Uh, Lula jumped out to a commanding lead in 2021, right, very early on, um, which in some ways reminds uh, me anyway, as an, as an American watching U.S. politics of, of a kind of commanding lead that, that President Biden took in the early months of the presidential contest in 2020 against, against former President Trump. Um, there's been some inevitable tightening, tightening in the race. Bolsonaro does seem to have closed the gap uh, a bit in 2022. Uh, not so dissimilar, again, from dynamics that we saw here in the United States in 2020, but Lula remains in a relatively enviable position. All the talk and speculation about a third-way candidate, some alternative to these more polarizing archetypes of the Brazilian left and, and right really haven't come to fruition. Ultimately, it seemed that um, this was something that was being more speculated in the corridors of political, economic, and journalistic power in Brazil than uh, on the streets of, of Brazil. No third-way candidate has gotten above, I think, 11 12%, and they're all below that now. Um, and so if you said a via option seems all but discarded. And so with that backdrop, I guess one question would be, is that in fact true? Can anyone other than Lula or Bolsonaro still get into the race? Um, can anyone defeat Lula? Notwithstanding some of this tightening, as I said, he seems to be in a pretty strong position. And how do the trends that we've seen since Lula's rights were restored and so on and so forth compare uh, with past election cycles? I think those questions and anything else that you would like to present would be really useful for the audience. And so with that, Mauricio, over to you. Well, first of all, thank you so much, uh, Nick, for the invitation. Thank you so much, uh, Will. Wilson Center for organizing this, this event. It's a pleasure to be here with Patricia and Fernando. Aside from the voting intentions that are luckily published every week in Brazil, and now this is a, something different that we have right now, that we have more supply of, of polling, I want to stick with some, some data points that I have, and I want to share some thoughts. Well, first of all, uh, every time I approach uh, an election, I always look after the key question of this election. And the key uh, question, in my uh, humble opinion, uh, in a re-election race like uh, the one we are having now in Brazil, is that Bolsonaro deserves or not to, to, to be in office for more four years. And we are, we are tracking this question since uh, last year, since January uh, 2021. And Bolsonaro has a um, problem because um, the majority of Brazilians, they do think that he does not deserve to, to continue as a president. And uh, when, I, when I compare this data with other countries, um, presidential elections, and especially re-elections bids, uh, it's very tough to be re-elected when above 50% of the voters uh, think you should not be in office. So this is the key challenge for Bolsonaro because today basically more uh, people 
think that he does not deserve to to be in office. But again, he is getting better uh, the the last couple months. Uh, as you see, they imp he improved his numbers. So this is a, a good sign for him. But uh, on the other hand, it's a challenge. And one of the things that I did, uh, this is what we call an, an aggregator uh, of polls. And I have data since the Sarnay times. And this data is about uh, presidential approval ratings, basically positive evaluation. When, when, when the voters claim that the, the current uh, president are doing or an excellent or a good job. So we have, uh, uh, and, and we, we have this aggregator of different polls from different institutes since the Sarney era. And you can see that, especially uh, when, when we compare, Bolsonaro has a negative trend in this uh, period in office. Uh, different, for example, uh, from uh, Fernando Henrique in his first term, Fernando Henrique was reelected, Lula in his first term, and also Dilma, that uh, Dilma lost a lot of popularity in 2013. Uh, you guys do remember that we have a massive street protests in Brazil. Uh, but also Bolsonaro has a negative trend overall in his, in his term in office. When we compare this aggregator uh, with the same period of, of, of the first term of Fernando Henrique, Lula and Dilma, we see that, uh, first of all, all presidents in the election year, and now here we have the months in the, in the office and the evaluation percentage. So all presidents in the election year, they, they improved their popularity, their approval rating. So you see Lula here, the, the red one. You see Fernando Henrique, he, was, he, he improved during this, his uh, re-election campaign and he lost popularity when we had, after the, the election, the Russia, Russia crisis. And even Dilma that had a huge down, uh, he lo she lost a lot of popularity in 2013, but even though she managed to regain approval rating, like the period before the election, and she was the, the president that had, had more trouble to be reelected. And then you see the, the curve of Bolsonaro in, in, in green. We feel that he already started to improve his numbers, his approval rating in 2022, but he also is below the, 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 the level, for example, of Dilma and Lula. And he was a little above Fernando Henrique at this moment. So he, he needs to, to improve a lot during the campaign to be in the same position that he, his peers were uh, in order to be reelected. However, uh, and you see here the curve of Bolsonaro. Bolsonaro started with a very high level of expectation. Um, oh, usually the presidents, they do start with a, a positive ratings in terms of positive evaluation, but he had some issues. Of course, in the beginning of the pandemic, this was this was basically when he was basically not accepting the reality of the pandemic. Then he got improved, especially because the government uh, introduced uh, income transfer emergency uh, program. Then we had the first quarter of 2021 that was very critical for Bolsonaro because people did not have the, the financial relief, the financial assistance. And on top of that, the pandemic was in a very high curve. But again, now in 2022, he's kind of uh, improving, but he's, he's in that 30, percent, uh, 30 percentage points level of approval rate. What does it mean in practice? Because as you know, all the presidents in Brazil, they were reelected when, when they tried after the dictatorship. But uh, we also looked 
at uh, go, the state governor's race. So we went to every single government that sought re-election since 1998. That was the first year that re-election was possible. And we compared the, the level of approval for each governor and the, the, the election results, the election outcome. And uh, what I can tell you is that governors with uh, 60 to 80% approval ratings, all of them were re-elected. Governors between uh, 40 to 60% of approval ratings, 77% uh, were re-elected. And governments, uh, governors between 20 and 40% of approval rates, that's the range of Bolsonaro is right now, depends on the polling, but that's the range of Bolsonaro is. 36% uh, got, got re-elected and below 20%, just one governor in a very specific uh, context uh, was re-elected. So it's, 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 it's important to say that there is a, a, a above 40% uh, becomes much more likely to 40% uh, approval rating becomes much more likely to, to get reelected below. It's very tough. And I just want to point out this curve between 2010 and 2014. This was the, 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 the terms. In between those terms, we had the, the, the 2013 protests and all this massive public mobilization. And after that, the level of approval rating become one, uh, become lower. So, so basically the governors and the presidents in Brazil they're having much more trouble to get uh, an approval ratings in, a, in the majority level. One of the things that I want to talk about Bolsonaro itself is that uh, Bolsonaro was, uh, had a very important victory in the Southeast region. Uh, Southeast, as you guys know, Sao Paulo, Rio, Minas, and Espirito Santo, they concentrate almost 40% of Brazilian voters. Uh, and it's interesting because Bolsonaro would have won in the first round based on the votes from the Southeast. Uh, so he got 53% of the valid votes in the Southeast in 2018. And the second round, he got almost two thirds of the valid votes in that region. And today, the Bolsonaro has a, a big issue because this is the region that still there's a lot of votes and still the majority of, of people in those states uh, think that he does not deserve to be reelected. And, and one of the points that I wanna make here that from my vision and from the data that we have at the moment, uh, the Southeast would be the key region that will decide the, the, the election in Brazil because the center west and the south of Brazil, they are most likely uh, give Bolsonaro a win. And the Northeast and the North, uh, I think it's gonna be a much more Lula's territory. I just made, uh, uh, I got all the, the public uh, data from different public polling and I just state at the state level, and I just give you some sense about how the election is playing right now based on the on the state polling, presidential race on the states. Uh, so, like I told you, my my hypothesis is that uh, the southeast would be the key region for this election, and especially the state of São Paulo that in this election has a. Uh, interesting situation because the state of Sao Paulo used to be a very anti-PT, anti-workers party. Uh, and right now the, gov the Bolsonaro government is more rejected than approved in the state of Sao Paulo. And, and of course the state of Sao Paulo still carries on the rejection of the PT. So state of Sao Paulo would be a very key battleground state in my opinion. As always, Minas is uh, a battleground state. 
And it's interesting to say that so Bolsonaro has a very strong base of support with evangelicals. So look at uh, the, 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 the green curve is that Bolsonaro deserves to be reelected. And for the, for the evangelicals, is the majority of evangelicals think that he deserves to be reelected. So he, this is his, he has a very strong base on the center west and the south. And he has a very strong base nationally with the evangelical groups. And then we can talk about hours about the evangelical votes, but just to give you a sense of, of Bolsonaro's regional and uh, religion in the religion sector support. The other question, and, and then we have, and then I always say that this election is a battle of rejections because we have in the other side, uh, a president that's very well known and has been the ballot since 1989. And the key question is that does Lula deserve to be president again? And we're also asking this question since last year. First of all, Lula voting rejection that's between 35 to 40% depends on the poll, but this here the, uh, at the one third level of total rejection, 41% has a negative evaluation of the, the persona of Lula. So uh, it's a very uh, high number actually. And we, are, we also asked the direct question about Lula deserves to come back. And half of the country says that Lula does not deserve to come back. So it's a very interesting scenario because you have a, a government that is rejected from the majority of the population. And you have a political figure that is also rejected by a very uh, important and significant portion of the Brazilian voters. Uh, on the other hand, this is uh, since 1994, uh, 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 from what I have data, this is uh, uh, a year that combines a lot of negative news from the, the economy side. Uh, we have inflation, we have unemployment, we have an informal sector, we have the discussion about income transfer. And, uh, and just bringing a, a number from Datafolha, that's, I think it's very interesting. This uh, upwards curve here, shows uh, about the, the importance of the unemployment, economy, poverty, and inflation in the life of the Brazilians. You see, uh, in 2018 was a year that corruption and security was a much more important variable to, to the whole overall uh, election. But this year, after we got the COVID under control, we, we get a huge importance about the economy. So this is basically, and this is one of the issues that Bolsonaro uh, is in trouble in terms of a positive evaluation because the economy is very related and connected in the, on the minds of the public opinion about what the president is doing. So the president can, cannot uh, uh, transfer the accountability uh, on the economy. This is, happens everywhere. It's happening in Brazil as well. And, and another, this is a data from a, a, a poll that we did for, for Revista Exame. So again, if you see unemployment, if you see inflation, if you see hunger, uh, that they are occupying a very important portion of the of the space on, on the minds of voters. Huh? And again, the, this this year we have something that we didn't have in other election cycles. That's the where we are have a, uh, we're going into the election with a very high level of inflation. So this is and and when we, we see the data globally, it's very hard to run an election. Or if you are on the executive branch with a, a high level of inflation. And as, as Americans, you guys know that Biden is suffering in his popularity here in the US because of the level of inflation. So this is a challenge for Bolsonaro as well, given the importance, uh, the, the level of importance that this topic has for the voters. 
And not only the, the current inflation, but the perspective of, of price increase, the, the expectations of the prices and, and people that, that do, do study economics, they know that inflation is all about expectations and the expectations of the prices in Brazil are very negative. People, 83% consider that the price increases are gonna be a big problem, uh, not only today, but in the future. And uh, we got, I got some, some quotes from, from Fox groups that we run uh, with the, what, what we called um, key voters. What, I, what is a key voter? For me, the election is gonna be decided among a very specific group that we uh, up to 10 percentage points of voters. This group includes uh, voters that voted for Dilma in 2014, uh, for the PT in 2014, and voted for Bolsonaro in 2018. Those are the key uh, players because they are basically outside the bubbles of rejection. And for those voters, uh, the key is the economy. So that's why uh, it's going to be very critical to see in October how it's going to be the Brazilian state of economy. And I just brought some quotes here that people talking about the daily issues relating to unemployment, to hungry, to uh, inflation and uh, everything, and poverty as well. Uh, but one thing that I think is in a very important to keep the eyes is the abstention level in Brazil. We see that we have, a, a, an, again, a, a, it's increasing the abstention level in, the, in, the, in Brazil in presidential elections. And it's important to note that the second round has uh, always greater abstention level than the first round. And it's very also important to know if we do have a second round on presidential election, it's very important to keep an eye on the state uh, uh, races second round, because usually the states that have a second, uh, a runoff, a second round, they have a lower level of abstention compared to the states that uh, they have only the presidential election uh, going on. So just, just one of the things that we, I, I did study a lot the election in 2014, uh, Dilma against Aesio, and one of the issues that decided that election was the level of abstention, and the abstention actually uh, was not good for Aesio, given the map of abstention at that time. So uh, it's important to, to be aware that that can be a very important, predictable of the outcome. And one of the things that we, we want to measure, because different from 2018, we're gonna, in 2020, the, 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 the election uh, court, the electoral court in Brazil, they released a, an app that uh, people use to, to download to justify the absence uh, of the elections. And they did it, in, uh, it was like three or four weeks before the, the election uh, day, and it was, uh, if I don't, if, if I'm not wrong, about 10 million people that uploaded, and this is a very interesting predictable uh, predictor that we're going to have. Because imagine if 40 million, 30 million people upload the, this app. This is a very uh, strong uh, uh, forecast on how how is going to be the level of abstentions in Brazil and the abstention in a close election. It's a key variable. So just just to, to keep in mind that the abstention can be a very uh, important factor. And just to finalize uh, and try to answer uh, the questions that I have. First of all, I don't believe in the third way uh, yet because uh, the, the first reason is because the first time in Bra uh, Brazil's national election had two very, I would say, big figures. Uh, both Lula has a very strong base that I, I always say that the, the Lula base is a very popular one. 
is the lowest income segments of the population is very concentrated in the Northeast, for example. And it's, I always say that Lula is bigger than the PT itself. So we have a candidate that jumps in a, in a race with 30% of, 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 of a, a very strong support group. Then on the other, on, on the other way, we have the current president that even with uh, the issues about the government evaluation, even with the COVID, even with inflation, he has a strong base, the 20% uh, of voters that they always had been uh, uh, with him with positive evaluations and so he starts the race with at least 20 percent of the votes of course uh, remember uh, as i mentioned those votes are very evangelical are very concentrated in some regions in some levels of income but anyway so we have two candidates that they do start with one is with 30 percent the other one is 20 percent is very tough so have half of the country Already uh, uh, engaged with uh, with a group, uh, so that's why and and, and so that's why the and on top of that the political uh, uh, I would say leaders in Brazil, uh, as you guys know, they were much more uh, I would say concentrated on the, the the election for for the Congress because the election for for the Congress has financial implications for all the parties in Brazil. Then we didn't have a, a project or, or or a candidate that will you uh, actually face with those two very strong uh, candidates that are already there. At this moment, it's become much more unlikely. So my call is that we're going to have a very close election because, uh, as, I, as I mentioned, this is a battle of rejection. So we have on one hand the people that reject the government from above 30% of the what of what Lula has as voting intentions, above those 30 strong core voters of Lula, are the people that don't want Bolsonaro in anyhow. They are the, what we saw, the strong uh, rejectors of, of the government. And above the 20, 25% of Bolsonaro's core uh, voters are the people that don't want to, the PT back. So they reject PT. PT is the worst uh, party that ever came to power in Brazil. So I have heard a lot of this in folks groups in, uh, in qualitative surveys. So the decision would be uh, whatever uh, is bigger in October, if it's the rejection of the government or if there's rejection of PT. As, as today, if the election would help today, the, the, the rejection of the government is greater, it's higher than rejection of PT. But this is basically what's going to decide uh, the election in October. And sorry Thank for you. Thank you, how you Thank you so much for that very comprehensive and, and fascinating overview. There's a lot to unpack there. And I want to see if our if our other panelists have anything that they would like to chime in on that before I go to my next question. I'll just say, um, for what it's worth, that my big takeaways quickly on the on the back of an envelope there were uh Bolsonaro has a ceiling problem. He's struggled to get over 30, 35% his chances at re-election would go up significantly if he can get that approval rating anywhere from five to 12 points up based on what poll you're looking at, over 40%. Um, he's got a, a, a hard ceiling there right now. We'll see what happens. Um, race of projections, as you said, Mauricio, these are two candidates very well known to the Brazilian electorate with a lot of baggage. Um, and then finally, really keep in mind in terms of swing regions uh, that the Southeast is looking like um, the most likely uh, to, to decide the race. Um, and finally, it's the economy, stupid. So whereas 
other issues. The economy has always been important in Brazil. We've seen certain cycles where other issues like corruption have bumbled to the fore. This does not seem to be that kind of election. Um, we're going to be back to the bread and butter. One question that I might have for Patricia and others is, that seems like quite an advantage, at least theoretically, for former President Lula. I mean, those are that's sort of his bread and butter campaign trail platform, how he tries to kind of frame the narrative around his own presidency. Um, anyway, that's one kind of standard line of thinking, and that Bolsonaro does better when the, the conversation is more focused on social issues, social cultural issues. Um, so I'll be, I'll be curious to hear what folks think about, about that. Um, Patricia, I'd like to turn to you. Uh, we, we've just heard Mauricio's lay down. Um, any reactions to, to what he, he put forward would be, would be welcome. But more generally, I just want to know how you see the state of the race. How do you see the core narratives uh, that each campaign is, is trying to, to put out there? What is the, the preferred messaging being pushed by the candidates? Of course, um, very curious how both candidates are structuring their campaigns. How are they using social media to, to get these messages out? Um, what's changed since 2018 when social media applications uh, and their use in the Brazilian presidential election became a global news story? You know, what's the same? What's different? What are you concerned about? What's improved? And then finally, um, the elephant in the room, which is how concerned should international observers and Brazilians um, be about this ongoing narrative, both from the Bolsonaro government, but also uh, on the social media platforms about the potential for electoral fraud and some sort of rupture in the democratic order in Brazil? Wow. <laughs> well, first, I wanted to thank you so much, Nick, for such a generous introduction that made me blush and it's a huge honor to be uh, here participating in a panel with the Wilson Center and, and together with people I really admire like Mauricio and Fernando. Thank you so much and, and thank you Mauricio for such a comprehensive presentation. I mean it's, it's hard to say anything that relevant after what you presented to us. Um, First, I just wanted to point out something that I thought was interesting in Mauricio's presentation, which is, uh, which is the uh, people who are not going to show up to vote. Uh, this should be more and more a concern in Brazil. I mean, it's been a concern in the US and several other countries where voting, of course, is not mandatory. In Brazil, voting is mandatory, but the fee you have to pay is very low, but it's complicated. It's a hassle. You have to go there to justify your vote. Now, with the app that was introduced by the electoral um, justice, uh, it's interesting to see if that's going to have an effect. And also because the most tech savvy voters are young voters, presumably, right? And young voters are one of the key voting blocks that the Lula campaign is betting on. Uh, I mean, they have better numbers uh, among young voters. So this is something at the same time that they are very engaged, we had record numbers of young uh, voters registering to vote. I'm not sure how this uh, new convenient app that is makes it easier for you to justify your vote is gonna, you know, have an impact on, on uh, young people's uh, votes. 
Um, having said that, I'm going to start with the elephant in the room uh, so that we just get this uh, out of our way. Um, I think at this point we are, well, no, sorry, I'll go back. I'm just going to say what I'm doing uh, here. I'm, I'm doing a research project at Columbia um, together with the University of Rio de Janeiro and University of Minas Gerais, in which we're basically monitoring um, Telegram and WhatsApp groups and also junk news websites, which are also hyperpartisan uh, news websites, which basically structure a parallel news ecosystem that is uh, the source of information of the most hardcore uh, Bolsonaro supporters. There are also some hyperpartisan, quite a few hyperpartisan uh, uh, websites uh, on the left as well, but it's not as strong as, as uh, in the right for the right-wing voters. And uh, also because these, this parallel ecosystem uh, that basically is, it works as, you know, you have the main Bolsonaro, his main allies, uh, extreme right-wing bloggers, uh, extreme right-wing uh, YouTubers and, and the, the uh, websites, they sort of feed, uh, they have, uh, they feed from each other. I mean, they, they're reinforcing their messages and, most potent messages are one, mainstream media is not to be trusted. And second, polling is not to be trusted. That's that's gained a lot of track recently, you know, just trying to discredit all traditional polling and spreading uh, information about online uh, polls and some really not trustworthy polls. So to say, you know, uh, Lula is not really heading in the polls, uh, even though he's like 10 to 15 points ahead. So all that, if you combine this with all the narrative that President Bolsonaro has been um, spreading, all the doubts he's been sowing in the last, let's say, two years, I think, but most frequently last year, that uh, electronic voting machines are not to be trusted, that uh, voting is going to be fraudulent, voting is rigged, and you can't trust the electoral justice. It's basically what we're watching, and I'm sure that all sounds a little familiar to the American audience. Um, it's sort of we're watching a slow motion coup d'etat, or at least attempted coup, uh, or maybe a preemptive coup, right? So at this point, I think we, we could have, and maybe I'm not sure if Fernando or Modisu agree with me, but we have three possible scenarios. Uh, one, um, Bolsonaro... Former President Lula wins uh, by a not, not such a large margin as uh, Mauricio was uh, predicting. Uh, and there's no way President Bolsonaro is going to accept the result. I mean, no one in Brazil at this point can see the, the scene of President Bolsonaro just, you know, uh, doing like a peaceful transition of power in case he loses, right? So then there's the big question, will he be able to stage a coup d'etat? Is he going to have support? We don't know that. Uh, what kind of violence is going to be involved in all this? We also don't know that because it's, it's worth mentioning that in the US, which is a very mature and established democracy, you had uh, people who died on January 6th and up until now, depending on the polls, a big percentage of Republican voters still think President Biden is not a legitimate president. So that shows uh, the strength 
of uh, you know the whole anti-civic uh, narrative. Uh, so even if he's not successful in a coup d'etat, we might have significant instability in the country, social instability. Uh, the second scenario is uh, President Bolsonaro wins re-election in which uh, he's going to be really empowered. And uh, since up until now, uh, the checks and balances have been... Um, what's the word I'm looking for now, uh, have been weak, being weakened or demolished or what's, I mean, we, we've had, uh, you know, in Congress, you have uh, the House with uh, President Artur Lira is pretty much aligned to President Bolsonaro. The Senate, not so much. And I, I'm sure Fernando can talk more uh, appropriately, more uh, better than I can about this. Uh, and uh, we have the judiciary system that was acting as sort of uh, the last, uh, you know, very firm uh, checks and balances uh, standing. And uh, we know the next president of Brazil will get to pick at least two justices. We have two justices of the Supreme, Supreme Court that, that are going to retire. So that means he's going to have four justices which is not the majority, but it's uh, pretty good if you want to, um, I mean, there's something you can do in Brazil that is called pedir vista, which is you, you basically can decelerate or uh, obstruct uh, decisions, right? And then you also have the so-called um, monocratical rulings, which is just one uh, judge decides. Uh, so it increases uh, the possibility of the authoritarian measures of President Bolsonaro, and that includes all the dismantling of the environmental policy and everything that is, uh, you know, supposed to protect the Amazon. Uh, it's going to be much more likely that he's going to get his way if he gets reelected. Uh, and the third scenario is if President Lula wins by a, lot, a, a wide margin, which I am not a poster and I would defer to Mauricio, but I, I don't see this as very likely at this point, at least right now. Um, so having said that, uh, I think uh, everybody is, is, is pretty concerned. And what we are seeing in this parallel news ecosystem, which is basically, um, it's very important because it energizes and mobilizes this core base of supporters. But it can also, I mean, all the disinformation research, uh, we don't have any quantitative analysis saying that, you know, this information campaign can uh, sway a vote. Someone's going to vote for X and ends up voting for Y. However, we do know that it does mobilize and, and, and sort of uh, make uh, people more extreme. So that, that's important for turnout. Uh, that's important for social instability. And what we are seeing now in this uh, monitoring that we do is uh, a few things. Yes, you are correct. Uh, it's not as in 2018. 2018, we had this main uh, theme, which was, you know, anti-corruption, anti-system, and now inflation and the economy are very important uh, topics for the voter. Uh, so on the one hand, we see all this um, uh, ecosystem trying to convey the message that 
uh, fuel prices are not uh, the responsibility of the president. And that is being done through several uh, ways of messaging. Either you're saying, you know, it's uh, the governors are to blame, or it's actually um, the gas stations are, uh, you know, just uh, scamming you. I mean, you have so many ways of uh, sort of um, trying to say it's not President Bolsonaro's responsibility because they do realize that's a very sensitive issue. And as in the US, gas prices are something very real and very concrete for the voter. So on the one hand, they are trying to uh, um, spread these two narratives. Uh, what President Bolsonaro did not accomplish was not his fault, was because you know Congress and the media and the judiciary would not let him govern as he would have. So that's why he has not accomplished what he promised. Uh, high prices and inflation, they're bad all over the world. It's not a Brazilian problem, which is correct. However, ours is uh, worse. Uh, but they try to you know, put the whole gas prices thing uh, as someone else's uh, uh, guilt, uh, blame, to blame. Uh, so this is one thing. But on the other hand, I do think that the whole uh, culture war, values voter thing is pretty much alive. I'm not sure um, how important that's going to be. But if you think about some of the core bases of uh, President Bolsonaro, evangelical voters, uh, more conservative voters, I mean, from what we see from the disinformation campaigns in the several uh, channels, let's say YouTube, Telegram, WhatsApp, uh, we have a lot of disinformation aimed at evangelical voters concerning abortion, concerning um, pedophilia. I mean, some of the themes that are very familiar here in the US, the, the whole QAnon stuff. And then, of course, the main thing, I think, in terms of disinformation and in terms of uh, us getting concerned about is um, there's a massive, and I know Maurice also has some research on that, there's a massive uh, amount of disinformation concerning the electoral system. It is massive. I mean, at this point, you have, uh, there's even like among people who are gonna work in the elections, some of them do not believe in the system. And I mean, we have never had any credible evidence of widespread fraud in the elections in Brazil after the voting machines were introduced in the 90s, right? So there's no uh, previous, it's just, just like the US. I mean, in the US, you even had the problems in the 2000 elections, you know, you had some issues. Uh, in Brazil, since the, the, the electronic voting was introduced, there's, there was none, I mean, or not, at least not uh, widespread or, or something that people noticed a lot, right? And they managed, I mean, the president, his allies, and the disinformation apparatus to instill the population, even though the majority of the population still trusts uh, the electoral system, a good part of the, I mean, a, a big portion of the population does not, which is very concerning. I mean, this could fuel a lot of social instability. And I think that's the main, uh, we see uh, people directly linked, uh, le legislators, the president himself, uh, why, disseminating this uh, narrative and these attacks. And, and this is part of uh, the mobilization uh, toolkit. They're not gonna give up on there because that mobilizes uh, 
the base and that works as a vaccine in case he loses he's going to say you know uh the polls the mainstream polls were either controlled by banks or they are uh, you know by the main corrupt mainstream media uh so they're not to be trusted so uh president lula was never ex-president lula was never uh, ahead of president bolsonaro by 15 to 20 points uh the electoral systems are rigged so unless we have and this is what um the last things that president bolsonaro has been saying is that uh, we need a parallel uh, voting, uh, vote counting system with the armed forces doing this. And we also have independent auditing, uh, like someone, like a company, outside company auditing the voting. So, and unless we have that, uh, we cannot trust the results. So with all that combined, um, I think the only thing that we can be sure of is that there's going to be social instability. We don't know, uh, to what extent um, and uh, we're all trying to figure out how to deal with this, how to, you know, sort of have vaccines in terms of information, in terms of, you know, not having violence, in terms of just guaranteeing whoever wins the election is the person who is inaugurated and we don't have uh, massive social instability uh, um, from the voting date until the inauguration date. Not sure if I was a bit confusing, sorry. Uh, thank you. Thank you, no, not at all. You gave us a lot to unpack. Patricia, I had one follow-up question for you. Um, I do wanna give Fernando some time. So maybe you could just touch on it quickly and then we can circle back to it afterwards. But I am curious when you talk about instability or the potential for an election result you know, to not be recognized, what might that look like you know on the on the worst end of the i guess eventualities would be something like a january 6 type of equivalent or some even talk about a real rupture in the democratic order i've, I've heard people refer to the brazilian constitution article 142 if i'm not mistaken which allows for various different federal branches of government to request that the military step in in a situation where there's a, a lack of law and order. I understand that this is a bit of a remnant really of sort of colonial era law in Brazil, that it goes back to a concept of the moderating power, the poder moderador, which had been designed to the, to the king, uh, you know, many, many, many decades ago. I mean, is that the mechanism by which we could see a more comprehensive rupture? It would just be useful. I know it's very difficult to predict the future, and in many ways we're in uncharted territory, but when you talk to people in Brasilia, any additional flavor on what this could look like, um, I think would be useful for the audience. Um. I am not going to risk talking about Article 142 because I am not a lawyer, but from what I heard, and, and maybe, you know, Mauricio or Fernando can help us here, um, that, that is not exactly what it means, but that is precisely what the Bolsonarista supporters are making it to seem it is. Uh, Article 142 is one of the most common topics of uh, the Bolsonarista disinformation machine, which for them, it, it is in the constitution that the armed forces are entitled to interfere 
with other powers if there is need to that. Um, however, I'm not a lawyer, but from what I've been reading, that's not exactly what it means, right? So um, I think there's two things and I'm gonna be, uh, I'm gonna try to be quick here. One of the things is uh, just um, instability in terms of violence in the streets. Uh, let's just imagine a situation. We have uh, a president of a country or one of his big allies or a legislator goes online or does a, a live video on YouTube or on Facebook saying, guys, uh, I have credible information that in the voting section XYZ, uh, they're not counting the votes for me, just the votes for the other guy. You should go there and confront the election workers. What are the internet platforms gonna do? We don't know because there's no moderation policy. And that's what we've been putting pressure on them. You know, you guys need to know what you're gonna do if that happens, because unfortunately that is gonna happen, right? So this is the one thing. The other thing is um, in the US, uh, according to reporting from really uh, amazing colleagues, I think it was from the Washington Post, uh, Mark Milley, which he was the Joint Chiefs, uh, the head of Joint Chiefs, is that the correct title? Um, he was the one that made very clear that the guys with the guns would not support any uh, attempt to overthrow or, or to, you know, revert the election results, right? Uh, as of now, there is an understanding, and I am not a person who has a lot of sources among the military, right? So I'm talking to the other guys, that the military commanders would not support something like that in Brazil. However, I am not that sure. We've we've been having some mixed, uh, you know, signals lately. We've had the the navy commander say that he would support a parallel vote counting and a, uh, independent auditing. So I think it all depends on what kind of support uh, he's going to have from the military forces. People were really very. Um, you know, calm about this saying, you know, there's no chance military commanders are going to support this. I hope that's true. I really hope that's true. But even if that happens, uh, the whole social instability thing, uh, you can picture something like that happening. You know, people going to the streets, uh, opposing uh, protests and, and violence erupting, violence against journalists. That's really, really probable why we're covering stuff. So, yeah. Very optimistic here, huh? Sorry. Yeah, he's sobering. <laughs> um, Fernando, let's turn to you. Uh, and I have a couple questions for you, but feel please feel free to touch on this last strain. I, I know some of your research and work in, in some ways also overlaps with, with Mauricio. So take it wherever you want. But I did just want to put um, forward um, a couple questions that are a little bit more related to policy. Uh, in any, uh, you know, think tank panel that comes out of DC, we, we got a policy wonk out at least a little bit. So um, how do you see the result of the election, putting aside potentially a difficult transition process? How do you see the result of the election impacting the country's economic trajectory um, and where it might go in terms of a policy? The economy has obviously been sluggish, with varying degrees for, for several years now. Um, and while there has been, perhaps to some, a surprising amount of stimulus or social spending funding from the Bolsonaro government, 
um, because of the pandemic, you know, in high inflation's undercut some of its benefit. Uh, that social spending has been also controversial because of previous spending caps that were put into place to make the country's debt profile more attractive. I mean, a lot of these debates predate Bolsonaro, right? Um, so I guess the question is, and of course, Bolsonaro, he campaigned on a, a neoliberal platform in 2018, but in reality, once he got into government, especially when the pandemic hit, he returned to more of his populist instincts that we saw exhibited as a congressman, right? Um, and actually has raised social spending, again, by more than you know many people would have, have thought. Of course, few of us expected a, a pandemic as well, but what can we expect from him in a second term? There's been some speculation that his economy minister, Paolo Gedges, might, might, might stay. What does Bolsonaro 2.0 look like? Is it more of this? Do we see a return to a more purely neoliberal agenda because the political consequences aren't as stark now that he's a lame duck, more privatizations? What do you think? And then in contrast with, with Lula, He's been very coy, right, on the campaign trail about what the economic platform will look like. Certainly hasn't gone into much detail. You know, I think for understandable political reasons, the tax seems to have been more to mostly rely on his previous track record, point to what he accomplished when he was president um, in the past as a guide to where he will focus. But he hasn't unveiled a new vision. Um, certainly not to not to the public. So similarly, what could we anticipate from him in terms of domestic policy in a 3.0 uh, version? Uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts on that and anything else that uh, Patricia and Mariso had laid down previously. Fernando, again, thank you for joining us, especially so early in the morning from, from the West Coast. Okay, no, thank you. And uh, that's that, those are tough questions, right? Predicting what the people are going to do in government, and I'll, I'll try to give some thoughts on that. Let me just try to put together Mauricio, Patricia, and get to your question, if possible. I just wanted to complement something uh, uh, on what Patricia said, is that we, we need to remember a classic definition, right? When we are discussing this, the possibility of a military coup or a possibility, uh, something is already wrong. Right, the democracy is not the only game in, in town anymore, and so uh, 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 we need to, sh to worry about that because only by uh, if this is on the table, something is not right already, right? And uh, uh, and I want to compliment what Patricia said. I agree with her in a lot of things there. Uh, let me just go step by step to get there. I remember uh, uh, having this in a different conversation with Mauricio uh, uh, a year ago in uh, April, June last year. And it's similar, this idea of aggregating polls, right? And this is 12,000 uh, 12, polls since uh, uh, the military dictatorship. But the, I did this on Friday to get exactly the day on the term Friday versus Friday, right? So for last Friday against last Friday. And what we see is that Bolsonaro is at least 10 points below in popularity than any other inc uh, incumbent exactly the same uh, time, right? Uh, uh, and when we see uh, uh, the, the negative uh, uh, view on the government, it's at least 20 points below, 
right? So as Maurice show, uh, uh, he's in trouble right there. And popularity is so important because when we, we look at uh, uh, what at least our model predicts in terms of popularity, uh, the month before election and what the incumbent had on the polls, it's pretty close, right? So here, Cardozo had 40% against 43% of uh, 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 a vote in the ballots. Uh, Lula had 46 against 44, Dilma 37 and 37. Right. So so uh, 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 the, the amount of uh, popularity that the president has is the main predictor. And we can start to throw some economic data there to try to think about the future. Right. So uh, here is, is where we are now. What we can do to think about the, the future? Where are we going to be in uh, uh, in six months from now? Right. So I'm just going to jump here because it's similar from what we've been discussing. If we take the delta between negative and positive uh, uh, view on Bolsonaro, it's negative uh, tw uh, 18 now, but it was negative 31 in December last year, right? So there is a proof, but not, not enough at this point, right? And so uh, uh, to get now to what Patricia said, uh, when we start to model uh, uh, what's going to happen on the first round, and this is millions of simulations uh, uh, like these were uh, different uh, uh, elections, right? Today, we calculate the, the probability of the election uh, ending the first round in less than 2%. Right, so so uh, uh, the probability that Lula is going to win in the first round at this point is less than two percent. It got to fifteen percent in December last year, where people thought that Lula could win in the first round, but was never above fifteen percent. Right, when we do see this the second round, and again these simulations is using uh, these polls on the second round. Right, uh, uh, the simulation shows a, a ninety-eight percent probability of Lula win. Right, uh, uh, with data that we have today. But of course, people answering questions about a second round six months before, uh, uh, it's very far. And people, we have a lot of evidence of that since the 50s, at least, that as far it is something people respond with what is on the top of their heads, it's, it's not as trustworthy as something closer to the election, right? And so this is to say that I agree with one of uh, Patricia's uh, uh, scenarios that we are not going to see a, a result in the first round. We are going to see a victor of Lula in the second round with a higher probability. Uh, uh, and what we can expect is that at least Bolsonaro is, is checking all the box of this playbook that we are seeing around the world, right? And Wilson Center has the best book, for instance, in, in uh, uh, populism in Latin America. And uh, uh, it's always the same, right? Uh, you are an outsider, you present as an outsider of a corrupt system, right? It's always us against them. It's always something that the system doesn't work and you try to, to, to talk directly to your base of supporters, right? So Peron did with radio, as, as Patricia is saying now, it's, it's on social media, right? And who is getting this information, as Patricia is saying? Uh, then uh, uh, my Bible here is uh, 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 this study by David Samuels and Cesar Zucco, who is at Wilson Center at this point, uh, that they have shown for, uh, with a lot of data for over 10 years that we can think about Brazilian system in uh, uh, dividing in three large groups, right? So when you think in Brazil, uh, Brazil has the largest number of parties in the history of democracies, right? So it's just comparable to Russia under Yeltsin, 
But we can think about three large groups, right? Those who support PT and go with PT uh, no matter what. Those who are against PT and are going to go against PT no matter what. And those who are nonpartisans, right? And we can think in general term, this varies poll by polls, but, but what they've been showing for many years uh, uh, is that in general terms, we can think about 25% of PT, uh, uh, 25, 28, 26, 27% that are anti-PT and are around 45 to 50% of the population that are non-partisans, right? And those those partisans, uh, and so these partisans, they tend to follow the cues of the leaders, right? So the anti-PT today are around 99, 95% with Bolsonaro. And that's what Patricia is saying. It's a lot of people, 25, 26, 27% of the Brazilian, and they are getting these cues constantly, right? And the, the skills in a playbook that had been tests in different countries, uh, uh, and and had uh, effects as she she was saying, right? But on the non-partisans, what we are seeing is that the economy at this point is uh, 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 is getting most uh, of the concerns, right? Around these non-partisans, right? So our job is try to predict what might happen with the economy, right? So I've been model we've been modeling, and these are our models to try to do counterfactuals, right? And so uh, uh, we run these Bayesian models, and and uh, uh, what we can see is that this was in the last quarter of last year, and the prediction was if the unemployment rate drops by two points, we should see an increase uh, uh, in Bolsonaro's popularity by four percentage points, right? Keeping everything else constant, right? And that's close to what happened, right? Considering last quarter to this quarter, uh, he had improved like five or six or seven points. And unemployment here is is only considering employment, keep everything constant. If it unemployment uh, increased by two points, uh, uh, the, the popularity uh, tends to decrease by three points, two to three points. So it takes longer to the popularity to drop uh, 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 than to increase. So governments have all these incentives to, to create a, 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 like an unnatural sensation that economy is doing better than it is, right? And that's what the government is trying to do now with all the tools that they have, right? Uh, uh, we can think about the same thing as the uh, exchange rates, right? The same models predicted that last quarter, if the exchange rate dropped and last quarter, uh, the last quarter of 2021, exchange rate was 5.5. If it dropped to four, we would predict a 3% increase in the governance popularity. The exchange rate dropped uh, and we saw some uh, increase in popularity. And inflation, on the other hand, is a great uh, uh, predictor uh, uh, against the government. Right. So inflation has been kept really high. And that's what we are seeing. We should see also uh, then the, the, if the inflation keeps around where it is, uh, 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 either uh, keeping the popularity at the level it is or a decrease uh, there. Uh, uh, inflation, the model has not uh, uh, converged as well. These Bayesian models, they have this. But what we see is that the, the uh, 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 the connection between inflation and uh, popularity is really high. Right. So getting to what you ask in terms of policy, uh, independent of who wins, I think the first thing we need to look, and this is a data on the level of support of all the parties to the current government in Congress, right? And what we see is that uh, uh, this is a comparison since the Cardozo year. So uh, uh, A, 
uh, uh, is Lula's uh, pension reform. Uh, D is Temer's the cap ceiling uh, change. F is uh, Bolsonaro's pension reform. And what we see is that uh, this large or liberal reforms, they usually happen when this level of support is uh, it's going up and it's close to its highest. So it's uh, when it's over 85% uh, in a scale of 100, uh, uh, they are meaning that 85% of the times deputies are voting with the government. Right. And of course, this is really endogenous because it might be because governments are buying votes or because they are popular. But but the, the thing is, so, uh, these large reforms happen when the level of support to the government is really high. At this point, Bolsonaro's is at, at, uh, uh, at 72 percent. So it's not the highest. And you can see that it's really far away from Dilma's impeachment, for instance. But the important thing is that when we break that to parties, what we are going to see is uh, 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 since uh, uh, the beginning of last year, a dependence on the central or these groups of parties who are not ideological and they are in, in power and in charge of the budgets as they never been before. Uh, uh, and so what we can predict to the next government, no matter who is in charge. Right. So this is something from my uh, PhD dissertation is basically a, a, a experiment or a, a series of experiments where you show uh, uh, two uh, uh, different profiles of candidates to Congress. And I did that in 2018, 2019, 2021. And you uh, randomize a lot of characteristics. So party, age. Uh, uh, uh. And the important thing here is that no matter when I did that, uh, 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 the thing that uh, increased the probability of voters choosing that candidate is the ability of this uh, 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 this deputy or the senator bringing pork to the municipality. What does that mean? So 18% more probability to choose that candidate, keeping everything else constant. That means that the amount of money that these parties had under Bolsonaro, and then we know we've been reading about pork and all this secret budget, uh, uh, our expectation that the, and the expectation of parties in Congress, our team on the ground, is that these parties are going to increase their level, uh, 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 their numbers, uh, the central parties, and they're going to try to increase their power no matter who is there. Right. What does that mean? Uh, uh, that means that these parties, uh, uh, if Bolsonaro wins, they are showing that they are all win with him. And so I would worry about what Patricia is saying, like a decrease of accountability. That's what happened in Hungary and all of those things. On the other hand, with Lula means that Lula is either need to go to negotiate a lot of these parties or try to find a, a different base. Uh, 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 and so the PSD with Kasabi might be the, the solution there, but we wouldn't expect like uh, uh, only the PT, PSB, or the, to give enough votes to, to promote huge policy changes uh, uh, at this point, right? Because if we look, for instance, at the average size of the, the, uh, the largest parties in Congress in the 90s, it was around 60, right? Today is around 32. So you do need to form coalitions. And so the question is, uh, what type of coalitions, right? Uh, uh, and, and so one important thing, and this comes to the work from uh, uh, Bertolini and Pereira, is that the, the largest is the distance between Congress uh, 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 ideology and the, the president's coalition ideology, the, the more expensive it's going to be to, to form coalition. Right. And so Lula, as you said, is not showing his cards in the sense of uh, 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 whom is going to be uh, 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 in, 
in his Minister of Economy and all of that. But what I would predict is that uh, the distance between Lula and Congress is going to be huge. Uh, uh, and also the distance between Bolsonaro and Congress. When you look at this data, Bolsonaro, the distance for the Congress is always uh, also huge. What does that mean? That either is going to be more expensive to, to form majorities. So we, we saw Mensalo under Lula. We are seeing the secret budget under uh, Bolsonaro. Or uh, uh, they need to have incentives. And so only thinking about this is no information because the information our team on the ground has on uh, the Lula's team is that he's keeping to his heart who is going to be the minister of uh, finance and all this, uh, these things. And that's rational, right? So uh, there is no gain in showing that now. But what I would say is that incentive for Lula is more uh, to come to, to the center because uh, uh, 20 years ago, we had PSTB there, right? Uh, 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 now you don't have. PSTB is way weaker than it, would, it was, right? Uh, uh, but... On the other hand, what information that flows to our team or in the press is who is Lula listened to in terms of economy is more people to the left. So a lot of uncertainty there. In terms of Bolsonaro, uh, uh, I would say that he follows all the playbook that Wilson Center books and other shows on populism, right? It's not about the economy. It's more about us and them. And, uh, uh, and so... Uh, 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 and I think also he follows the playbook uh, uh, on this decreased checks and balance uh, and all of those, right? So we're seeing what's happening with Petrobras right now. So uh, 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 Geddes is doing everything to keep in power. But I don't think I don't see the incentives for Bolsonaro in the second round to keep this idea that he's a, 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 a a liberal or something like that, right? That was only uh, always, in my view, a campaign to to get this uh, uh, antipetistas and all. But again, this no data. What I think the data can show is that no matter who who wins, they are going to be kind of far away from Congress, and that gives two incentives: either uh, uh, use a lot of money to to get support for Congress, money in pork and all of this stuff. That's what happened with Lula his first term, and what happened with Bolsonaro now or try to, to accommodate and come to the center, right? And then I think the questions that we need to ask is whom has more incentives to come to the center at this point? Lula gave one indication by putting Alckmin as his vice president. Vice president doesn't, uh, uh, doesn't mean anything electorally uh, in Brazil, but it might mean that if Centrão is so powerful, uh, 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 he knows that he as a vice president that might, uh, 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 he's a politician and, and Central might use that, right? So I don't know if I answer everything. I try to get uh, uh, all the points here, uh, 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 but I think we need to think about in terms of incentive from now to, to the election and uh, the economy uh, uh, to model which are the impacts of the economy uh, uh, in incumbents uh, from now to then. Fernando, that was super helpful. And of course, I, I had given you a series of impossible questions. Thank you for uh, humoring me and walking us through really, really, I think, important points. You know, my takeaways from that are no matter who the president is, they're going to face some real limiting factors in Congress. Not that they're insurmountable, but it will be something of a check, even if that check, the, the releasing of that check will involve pork barrel spending and, and, and greasing the, the skids. It seems like a really important point, not one that, that you hear about uh, all too often. So, so thank you for that. In the remaining time that we have, we have a couple questions from the audience. Um, so I'm going to pose those to our panelists. Um, 
The first one, uh, Patricia, I'm going to start with you. Um, but again, anyone feel feel free to chime in. This is from uh, Paolo Sotero, who almost needs no introduction, but he, uh, Paolo is a distinguished fellow uh, at the Brazil Institute uh, at the Wilson Center. He is also former director uh, of the Brazil Institute, as well as a contributing columnist at Estadão uh, in Sao Paulo. Um, Patricia, Paolo's question is about Russia and foreign policy. Uh, Brazil has become isolated uh, internationally over the last several years. Um, and presumably, just on the campaign trail, we've seen how that isolation has kind of unfolded in different ways. Lula obviously uh, was warmly greeted when he took a trip uh, to Europe, which many saw as sort of a tacit uh, support from European capitals for, uh, for his election bid and you know, where he might focus some of his foreign policy uh, priorities. And uh, in contrast, Bolsonaro went on a bit of an autocracy tour by visiting Moscow and uh, Orban um, and so forth. But notwithstanding some of those differences, as well as some of what we've seen on the campaign trail about issues of international interest, like uh, the Amazon and, and the environment, there's, there's one issue where the two candidates seem to more or less agree, surprisingly enough, um, which is on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, both uh, presidential candidates have signaled a fairly strong level of support uh, to Vladimir Putin and the importance of the of the Russia Brazil uh, relationship. Um, I think you know most recently the interview that Lula did with with Time Magazine, some of the comments that he made uh, equating Zelensky to to Putin really led to a lot of concern uh, here in, in Washington. And in fact, there might not be that much of a difference in terms of foreign policy between, between the two. Um, and the upshot has been further isolation uh, of Brazil, including with some of the very allies that Lula supposedly is, is courting in, in Europe, who see Ukraine as an existential threat. What's going on here? Can, can you unpack this for us and explain? Well, first, Thank you, Paulo Sotero, for your question. Paulo is an inspiration, and I, I, I say that he is my second dad. He was like a father to me in DC. So thank you for your question. Um, that is bizarre, yes. Uh, well, first you have part of the left in Brazil that basically is sharing RT and Sputnik um, content as if it were legitimate news. Uh, and, and there's this even, um, there's this very uh, old view that, you know, because they, uh, because Russia is against the US, because they're opponents, so Russia is anti-imperialism even when Russia is invading another country, right? So you do have part of the left that has this uh, view and has been sharing this view. And I think uh, former President Lula uh, sort of uh, in the beginning, they all had the what about-ism thing, right? Oh yes, Russia invaded Ukraine, but what about the US and Iraq? What about, and then people said, well, both are bad, right? I mean, you're not. Uh, and then they started um, sort of modulating the stance. Uh, 
former foreign minister Celso Amorim said, you know, he condemned the invasion uh, in the same way that they finally started saying that, you know, what's happening in Nicaragua and in Venezuela is unacceptable and it's not democratic. They're not there yet in, in condemning the, the regimes. But, but then you had this Lula interview where he sort of, you know, uh, had this false equivalence, right, between uh, Zelensky and, and Putin. Um, however, I do have some, uh, maybe I'm, I'm wrong, but I am a bit optimistic that the foreign policy in uh, a Lula administration, if that happens, uh, they would need to be more realistic and less ideological in terms of basically, you know, I understand the position of not getting in the Cold War, China, US, and not, you know, um, burning your bridges with China. But in terms of, of, of Russia, um, I do think they would have a more realistic uh position and, and point of view uh, in terms of, you know, viewing what's happening in Ukraine, in the war in Ukraine, uh, even though there's still this remnant of uh, old school anti-imperialism, anti-US thing. Uh, I don't think, I mean, in if we look at previous uh, PT administrations, there was a very strong ideological wing but many times the more pragmatic wing prevailed. And, and I would say so, I might be optimistic. Uh, in, in terms of President uh, Bolsonaro, I think he just has, he has this strong man affinity. You know, he's, you know, Putin is also a strong man like he is, like Orban is. So it's not even, he's not even thinking if, you know, ideologically or uh, it's a very personal relationship kind of thing. And plus, uh, there was no one else left who would actually, you know, meet with him. Uh, if you think about all his international trips, he barely gets bilateral uh, meetings because at this point he's toxic, right, diplomatically, unless you're part of this axis, the Western Christian, uh, whatever you call it, like Hungary. Um, so um, in that sense, I think Bolsonaro has... Uh, adopted this neutral stance just because he cannot um, allow himself, uh, give him the luxury of, uh, you know, being hostile to one of the few world leaders that still agrees to sit down with him. Uh, and of course, because of fertilizers, because we depend on, I mean, almost the majority of fertilizers in Brazil and the agro uh, voting bloc is very important. So there's no way uh, um, Bolsonaro is going to be in bad terms with them. They were already really pissed when he was uh, hostilizing China, right? Which is the main buyer of, of our uh, grains. So now, um, his, so Bolsonaro's position is more like a, of a lack of option, right? He can't really be hostile or condemn in very strong words Putin. And the Lula uh, position is, is very nostalgic in the sense of a Cold War anti-imperialist view, which is really not, it's anachronic. Do you have that word in English? Uh, and I, I think uh, the younger generations in foreign policy might prevail uh, if there is a Lula administration. I'm going to turn uh, for another question, uh, maybe our last. Uh, Fernando, uh, I think we'll start, we'll start with you on this one. Um, we want to talk a little bit about the private sector 
and the market, quote unquote, uh, views of, of the election race. When Lula started to pull into pole position, so to speak, uh, the first time around, or not his first time around, but in 2002, the first time he, he won, there was a lot of trepidation and fear, right, about what that might mean in terms of economic policy. And, <clears throat> excuse me, this famous letter from Lula was, was published, right? Um, and there have been stories in this cycle about how this time around, Lula's not going to do anything like that, right? He's got a track record. He's, you know, more of a known quantity. That would be a ridiculous thing to do. And, you know, fair, fair enough. But notwithstanding the fact that we're no longer in 2002, um, Lula's a global figure in a way that he wasn't then. Um, how do you see the role of the market, market perceptions, Sao Paulo, for lack of a better expression, the sort of chattering class about investment and so on and so forth. What role, if any, does that have on how the public, you were talking about how a perception of economic momentum can be helpful, even if it's not fully realized. Um, to the extent that the market has any influence at all this time around, um, what is it? What side are they perce perceived to be supporting? And what, if any, influence does that have uh, on the race. This question came again from, from Livio Rossi from Climate Action 100. Thank you. Okay, great. Yeah, thank you. In terms of voting, uh, very little, right? So, so, uh, 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 but I think in terms of uh, uh, impacts, so for instance, I show you that, that calculation on the effects of the uh, exchange rates on the president's popularity, right? And then so, uh, 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 an increase in the exchange rates might affect president's popularity that would affect Bolsonaro now, but in, in a following government, uh, uh, that could also affect pers uh, perspective for economic growth, right, investment in the country. And it's also a, a difference between 2002 and now, right, the economic situation uh, 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 is not, uh, uh, it's really bad, right, so, so we have a difference there. So trying to answer that directly, uh, uh, I think that what what the, there there is some uh, uh, systematic evidence that the pressure comes from uh, uh, the economy, right? So this is going to have an impact on the exchange rate that's going to affect the government or perspective of economic growth and all of these things, right? So there is some there, uh, 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 and and I think uh, 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 the market also has an important. Uh, role in big economic reform. So I have I have an experiment that I ran in Congress showing that uh, the pension reform, for instance, uh, 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 happened because a certain pressure of the private sector, right? So I was able to isolate some effects of the private sector pressure from the pension system, trying to isolate all the other possible effects there. Right. So I do think there is not in terms of uh, uh, now we don't have campaign contribution anymore and all, all the stuff. I'm not going to talk about uh, illegal campaign contribution in Brazil at, at, uh, here, but in terms of pressure on what perspectives for the economy, I think there is an impact. And I found, for instance, a five percentage point impacts in the pension reform, trying to isolate all the other aspects there. Thank you, Fernando. Uh, we've got one minute left, so uh, I hope 
everyone has learned everything that they needed to know about Brazil's upcoming presidential election. Obviously, that is impossible given all of the subtleties and, and nuance taking place. But I really do want to thank our, our three panelists for helping us at least start to get our minds wrapped around this, you know, four or five months out. They, they really are the best of the best. Thank you to all of our uh, audience members for spending some time with us coming together again today. We hope we can do it in person soon. Uh, and stay tuned. We will, we will be having more events and discussions um, as the election cycle unfolds throughout the rest of the year. Again, Fernando, Patricia, Mauricio, thank you so much. We really appreciate it. Uh, and take care, everyone. The Brazil Institute podcast is produced and edited by Oscar Cruz. To learn more, visit our website, www.wilsoncenter.org/brazil. Until next time, thanks for listening.